0: What's up, everybody? It's Cynthia Sam here. Welcome to Unleash the Man Within. Thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, today, we are sitting down with Cutter Calloway, Dr. Cutter Calloway. This guy is a double PhD, and he is um, he's brilliant. He's absolutely brilliant, and you might be wondering, what am I doing bringing a double PhD on here? And I'll tell you what I'm doing. I, I wanted to bring somebody who could really eloquently and um, accurately connect theology and psychology and the reason is because this is a faith-based podcast i am a christian and i come from a christian perspective and we are talking often about psychological concepts you know um, because the nature of this podcast is to help guys grow in sexuality to help you specifically overcome porn addiction and addiction in general is a obviously you know probably one of the biggest psychological issues that people are encountering in our society so often we're talking about psychological concepts or we're talking about theological concepts and I have um, sometimes put them maybe not at odds with each other, but I've sort of separated the two, even though I really believe they both support each other well. And I, I'm sure you can see that You know, there are some things we talk about that are more uh, clinical, but there's clearly a biblical basis and vice versa, biblical concepts that clearly have uh, a psychological practice. So I brought Cutter in, um, Doctor Cutter, because I wanted him to just talk a little bit about why both of these fields are so important, um, how to really use your theology, so your understanding of the Bible and of God, and you know the teachings that you're getting on Sunday morning. How to sort of, um, I guess, integrate those into psychology, which is very research based, and um, you know often doesn't even have a, a single. Uh, element of faith, like there's no theistic components of psychology, it's primarily atheistic or anti-theistic. Um, I know lots of different words here, but all else to say is I think this is going to help you intersect your faith and some of the clinical Principles and concepts that come with addiction recovery, um, because those two elements are actually much more integrated than you think. So, um, so this is Dr. Cutter Calloway. He's um, he's absolutely brilliant. He's just released a book called Theology for Psychology and Counseling, and that's what kind of created the opportunity for me to bring him on the podcast. Uh, I know you're going to learn lots. If you're sitting down, I encourage you uh, get a notepad and paper or pull up your notes app and uh, just, make a, just make a couple jot points along the way. He says a couple really profound things, and I know you're gonna learn, I know you're gonna grow, and uh, I'm excited to share it with you. So without further ado, here's my interview with Dr. Cutter Calloway. So here's the million dollar question. How are men like us who work hard, have good motives and a God-given purpose, supposed to fulfill the calling on our lives and the dreams in our hearts, all while establishing sexual integrity, thriving relationships, and a meaningful connection with God? That is the question, and this podcast will give you the answers. My name is Sathya Sam, welcome to Unleash the Man Within. Alright, well I'm here with Cutter Calloway, and um, I was just saying before we hit record, we have all kinds of guests on the podcast, and our guests tend to veer in either one of two directions. One is more on the psychological side, uh, the clinical aspect of men's health, porn addiction, all that kind of stuff. And uh, the other side is more on the spiritual, theological side, uh, really emphasizing that component. And uh, Cutter, what's really attracted me to your messaging, uh, to your material, and certainly to have you here today, is that you have nicely merged those two principles <laughs> or those two concepts. And, uh, and so I'm wondering if maybe as a starting point, you can just tell us a little bit of your background How did you get into, um, I guess, an area of research and study that merges both theology and faith and um, psychology?
1: Yeah, um, I mean, some of it's just kind of uh, historical contingencies, right? Just stuff that happened in my life. Um, I actually, my initial calling, if you will, is to the local church. Um, I... Started as a as a church planner kid growing up, um, and then helped plan a church in college, and you know worked as a pastor for a number of years. Mm-hmm. Um, and in many ways, uh, my undergrad though uh, in college was in psychology. I just found that a really interesting sort of uh, area of of study. Um, and as I was a pastor, and then going through seminary, etc., um, one of the things that continually came up. And I, I served as a pastor over a few different ages, um, uh, young adults, like youth, uh, middle school, high school, and then later more the kind of college, post-college, young adults, et cetera, um, was always involved in some way, shape, or form with uh, some kind of men's ministry because, well, there's half of the group is usually men. Um, And so uh, questions about uh, uh, sexuality and how to steward and navigate um, our sort of sexual desire in ways that are faithful. Uh, I mean, it it ran across all those age groups in various different ways. Well, what was interesting was the the two kind of areas that I recognized. um, One was the church as a whole, at least the churches I were in, or I was in, um, struggled kind of on two fronts. On the one level, they often uh, struggle to know what to make sense of kind of the broader society they lived and worked and interacted with. Um, Mm -hmm. and that, that was in terms of just sort of Christian mission. So like how can I be a faithful Christian out in the world? But then also what do I do uh, with all the various things that are going on in my life that shape my understanding of myself? Uh, and, and in some cases maybe it is my understanding of sexuality or intimate relationships, but even more broadly. And so I thought, wow, I, I really want to study more to help figure out how do we connect the church to culture. And so I stupidly thought getting, getting, getting degrees would help me. Um, so, so my first PhD is in theology and cultural studies. So I got a went and studied, uh, that, um, for that reason, this, the, the back, the other side of that though, is it wasn't just how does the church connect to culture? Um, I realized as a kind of a, a self-critical person, <laughs> who struggled in pastoral ministry for the, all the same reasons everyone struggles. It's such a, a difficult um, position and job yeah. was that I was a really good theologian. I was a really good uh, biblical exegete and was not a bad preacher. will continue to be not a bad preacher I w- if I do say so myself. Um, uh, but what I imagined was my role being sort of like the the head theologian of a community. It turned out that most of what the people in my congregations needed was therapy <laughs> they needed a they need they needed a psychologist really and I was like, oh wow I'm I'm not equipped for this at all um, you know there's some pastoral counseling and stuff you can do, but in terms of kind of a robust understanding of, of human psychology and then specifically clinical psychology, I didn't have any of those tools. So I'd always in the back of my mind thought, well, I wonder if at some point I'll go back and get a PhD in psychology well, Long story short, I did that too, um, and I I didn't get actually a clinical psych degree. I got a, a degree in psych. Uh, my P- second PhD is in psychological science, um, and and my joke there is I find humans fascinating, but I don't want to help them. Ha, 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 ha. No. Um, <laughs> But but actually, um, I was really interested in, um, in in learning how to do some of the on the ground empirical research in terms of like what makes people tick, um, what what makes them feel, think, um, behave in the ways that they do, and yeah. then combining that with my sort of theological instincts is what might God be up to in those scenarios? Um, where is God moving and active, and how can we as as leaders, um, as individuals, uh, think through our psychology in Christian terms and in theological terms. So that's the kind of long or the short story of a really long story, but um, that's kind of how I came to unite these two things.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. I I do love the, I guess the wisdom as a local church pastor to realize, oh, maybe maybe some of the tools and resources I have are not quite what they need or not going to fully kind of meet where they're at. Um, The typical response in church, I think, to a lot of psychological issues is to just pray about it more Read the Bible, that kind of thing. Why is it that um why or I guess maybe you could reconcile for someone why getting therapy or exploring some of the more uh, fundamentals of psychology are just as spiritual as maybe something that's more overt, like receiving prayer or reading scripture more.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a good question. I I think well, there's a there's a long history to this. Um, so let me see if I can <laughs> say it concisely. Um, there is a, a I'll call it a prejudice or a bias both within uh christian communities and within the psychological community but i think we all just need to admit um on the psychological side uh psychology in many ways the history of it started as an a, a, a almost explicit well the really early origins of at least of american psychology a guy named william james started and he was really interested actually in uh spiritual conversion stories so he was a, a person probably of Christian faith who is interested in the psychology of conversion, right? But the discipline as a whole of psychology originated from a kind of anti-faith uh, approach to life in the world. Um, and at various points in the history of psychology, it's taken on more or less of that sort of flair or flavor where it really is um, uh, religious or specifically Christian ways of understanding life in the world are seen almost as pathologies um, and as things to be treated as opposed to uh, reality, right? Like that prayer is real or, you know, um, so so that's real, that's actually there. And and I work at an institution called Fuller Seminary, and it was one of, I still think, one of the only seminaries that has a doctoral psychology program in it. And it started about 40 years ago. Um, and so recently, there's been a shift that that psychologists say, okay, well, um, if we're going to examine the whole of the human experience, we can't ignore what basically every human in all of history everywhere has done. And that is something that looks like religion. (laughs) Um, and then in a U.S. context, we can't ignore Christianity, right? This is, this is absurd if we're going to understand people. Um, and so things have shifted a little bit, but there is that bias. And I think the church has, has, um, has seen that and recognized it and and in some ways I think legitimately so said okay well if you're anti faith well what what good is it right like if you're going to start with these assumptions that god isn't real prayer doesn't work these are pathologies well we're not going to have anything to do with you so i think that is part of it mm-hmm. um, the other part though is a what and this is what we get at in the book a little bit um, and i say we because uh, i co-authored it with a colleague of mine uh, william whitney um, who is also a, uh, a theologian and clinical psychologist, a therapist. Um, and so we're both kind of have training in both both realms. Um, what we try to get out of the book is to say some of this uh, hesitancy or resistance or skepticism toward psychology within the Christian faith really has to do with what I would call as a underdeveloped theology um, and specifically an underdeveloped theology of God's creation. So what we do in the book is say, uh, if we start from this context of a broader framework of creation, God created the systems and the structures that we inhabit, uh, called them good. Are they they flawed and broken because of, of the fall? Yes, but that doesn't mean we can't trust what God has given us, that we can't every morning I wake up and the sun rises every day and that I can trust God's faithfulness in that. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of, part of our role as created beings in this uh, environment that God has given us is to say, I can explore it, right? I can explore the different sort of structures of creation, including humans, um, human minds, human hearts, human behavior. And what I find there is, is actually something that uh, was written into the fabric of the created order by God. And so part of our pursuit of knowledge, our pursuit of understanding the human um, is actually a pursuit of what God has created and invited us to experience um, and understand more about. And so that's kind of how we reframe it. And to to basically say this whole area of of knowledge that humans pursue in in the domain called psychology is just irrelevant and useless is essentially to do the same thing like saying, um, okay, well, uh, all the cool things going on in, um, cosmology right now is useless, right? Like we're finding stuff about solar systems and, 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 uh, black holes. And, um, if anyone's interested in that sort of thing or, uh, or oceanography, right? Like, oh, wow, we found these the, seven miles underneath the sea. There's these things happening, you know, um, It'd be like saying the Christian doesn't care about that and it's irrelevant to our life and how we understand who humans are and how God created us. It'd be the same to say psychology has nothing to say to us. So um, I think that's part of what we're trying to, to do is invite people to say, okay, prayer matters. And in fact, there's a whole psychological literature on prayer and its effectiveness, um, but at a, at a more fundamental level, um, can Christians rethink the way that they draw upon these various resources of human ingenuity um, and scientific investigation as as not a um, a thing to be skeptical about, but as actually the tools that God has given us to explore creation?
0: yeah, I, I totally agree. I think the those tools, actually just all they do is really add depth and add substance to uh, maybe some of the more obvious or kind of mainstream methods that that people are using to, you know, get breakthroughs in their lives and discover themselves and find peace and everything else. Um, And, you know, I'll say
1: one other one other thing, just as you're saying that, too. um, One thing that I think sometimes people fear, and this, again, is something that (laughs) the best scientists won't do this, but often many scientists do. And that is when they start with the assumption, again, that most of the natural sciences start with the assumption that either we cannot prove or that there is not no God, right? Like that's just the yeah. assumption. Um, well, often, the most sciences are descriptive, right? They're just describing what we can see and observe and they make no bigger claims. Well, often the sciences in, in the contemporary world actually do and they start going, mm-hmm. okay, we've now, We've investigated, let's say, um, uh, we've sequenced the human genome, right? Or we've we've looked into the dark heart of a black hole, or whatever. And now we have an exhaustive explanation for everything. And I think one thing that that and and I even we get at this in the book, but that I would say is a concern is, um, it's one thing to use the tools of science as a way to help us um, as Christians, um, but that's not the same thing as a replacement for theology or Christian faith. It doesn't exhaustively explain all there is to know about the world. Um, And I think that's one thing that sometimes people fear when they go, okay, well, I'm going to draw upon this science or that, and psychology in in particular, is that some psychologists actually do say, okay, we've now figured out everything there is to know about the human, uh, you know, spirit through psychology. We don't need anything else And I would come as a theologian and go, well, you know, not so fast. Uh, There's some other stuff. So it's a a kind of collaborative uh, conversation, a dialogue, as opposed to psychology does everything that we need.
0: Uh, Yeah, I totally agree. The operative phrase I've had lately is uh, there's a difference between being research-based and research-bound. And I think when when you're research bound, it can be um, dangerously absolute. So I did I did have a question about this. I'm really glad you brought it up because in your book uh, um, you had said psychological research is not providing an exhaustive account of the human, but it does enable wisdom and discernment by helping us avoid error. And so I'm wondering if you can maybe just dive a little bit deeper into that, because obviously uh, we don't again, like you're saying, uh, we don't want to throw out psychology either. It's super valuable. And I think if people can understand um, specifically what brings it value to this conversation, that could be quite useful. Yeah, well, uh, you, you got to read the book
1: to get all of it. But I'll think of a couple of <laughs> uh, um, a couple thoughts here. Sure. Um, I, I think, uh, well, th- there could be a number of ways to go about this. Um, the error uh, conversation in the book really kind of has to do with just the basics of um, not, not rooting or projecting all of what you think about the world based upon your individual experience. So um, I would say that your your individual personal encounter with reality, so the things that you feel, the, the ways that you think, the ways that you've been shaped are incredibly valuable uh, data points for understanding who you are, who, who Jesus is, but part of what it means to be a Christian is to say, I'm surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, meaning, um, I don't come to a, a sort of a final conclusion. Well, I don't think we ever come to a final conclusion, but I don't, I don't, um, say like, okay, here's, here's what I think, uh, being a follower of Christ calls for me in this moment, in this time, in this place, simply by my own, uh, set of sensibilities. I, seek the counsel of others. I look to the experience of others, both in my current life, um, in my religious community, so my my local congregation, but then also um, the the men and women who have come before me the last 2,000 years of, um, of Christian history. So um, I'm reading right now a, a book by uh, David Bentley Hart. Um, it's actually called Tradition and Apocalypse. Uh, it's a good little book, but he's basically saying, well, what is what does this thing called the Christian tradition even mean? Um, and as we look at history and different doctrines and doctrinal development, um, what can we say is the, the through line? Is there like one clear thing that all Christians throughout time have always held in common or is actually it pretty diverse and developed in organic, interesting ways? And um, so an interesting book, but, but the point is um, it's not as simple as just saying, okay, Um, I think X or, you know, the the bumper sticker, what is it? Uh, Bible said it, I believe it, that settles it sort of thing. You go, okay, there's some truth to that, but also there have been tons of people who have interpreted the Bible in a variety of ways, um, in a variety of different conditions. And to really come down to say, okay, I want to be the most faithful I can be in this moment of my life. Um, requires more than simply taking, the, again, the one data point of what I feel about the situation and saying, how have Christians throughout time and history imagined and responded faithfully in their time and context, given mm. what the Bible says, given how the Holy Spirit has been moving? Um, and And the analogy there to science is essentially to say that is similar to going, well, you're not going to go psychologically and say, I'm going to talk to one individual <laughs> and ask them, how they feel about uh you know there's a lot of stuff for example right now on anxiety and depression and you know this sort of thing coming out of covid um i'm gonna talk to one one human and that one human now i'm gonna project onto all eight billion humans on the planet and i'm gonna come away with like a good feeling about like yeah i think in general that's what everyone is thinking and feeling no you you actually talk to tens of thousands of people um you use actual math statistical probabilities to say okay we have a small subsection of this larger population, for us to make any claim with confidence about what's going on in general with people, we need to really draw from a larger sample size, right? So Mm -hmm. that's sort of what I'm getting at in terms of avoiding what would be called type one or type two errors. And that would be um, ways that you have kind of underpowered uh, samples that lead you to say, ooh, here's here's a positive example or a negative example um, and you avoid those by drawing upon this larger sample size, really. Okay. Um, that's that's one thing. I, I think maybe you're going in some other direction. So maybe I'll pause there. And N- yeah, sure. a no.
0: no, no, really helpful. So I was going to ask on a practical level, is this like, d- does it mean that somebody is um, maybe engaging with people a little bit more on certain subjects before they're drawing conclusions? Does it mean that they're, uh, I don't know, engaging their prefrontal cortex a bit more when they have like more limbic reactions? What? What does this look like practically? Yeah.
1: Um, so practically is a couple of things. One um is I think, well, so I'm biased. I teach at a seminary, I have two PhDs, <laughs> but I think but I think every Christian practically needs to do more of their own personal training um in theology, biblical studies, et cetera, in our tradition, right? So um I you know, again, this is I'm just preaching to the choir, I'm sure, but we're profoundly biblically illiterate um and illiterate in terms of our tradition and i think that's I, th- I think that's no good because um when we come to asking questions about now so a lot of your folks are thinking about um how, how do we steward faithfully male sexuality when it comes to pornography use etc so questions of addiction and purity and, and all this stuff well um we're not the first to ever think about this. (laughs) Um, There's a long history that's behind this. um, And at the same time, there are some very unique, specific to right now things that we're dealing with, um, right, that that we want to account for. So I think that's that's one thing that practically is um, this, it takes work, um, and discipleship is hard, and there's a lot of uh, time investment in it but it's, it's worth our while. It's not, I go read one blog and then I'm good to go. And I figured everything else out. Um, it's part of why I like the podcast format, because it is more conversational, it's long form, and it invites that kind of ongoing discipleship. Um, another side of the more practical thing, um, is a couple of things. So one getting to kind of the, the, the psych research uh, side of it, um, there's a, there's a couple of different streams of thought of this one. Um, uh, a sort of uh, approach called cognitive behavioral therapy. You'll see this a lot um, with, uh, actually, if you are any of the popular apps on weight loss or addiction or any of these sort of behavioral things are rooted in cognitive behavioral therapy, which is to say, I've got um, a couple scripts going on uh, in my my body and mind, and I don't wanna separate those, but we can think in these ways. Um, and, and some would talk about this in sort of a, uh, a system one and system two uh, framing. And, and what I mean by this is imagine, um, ooh, his name's escaping me. It's not Jonathan Haidt. Uh, it'll come to me, um, but I'm, I'm stealing this, this language. But you basically have an elephant and a rider, right? So you have this big elephant and you have a rider on the elephant. Um, and the rider has some reins, right? Uh, little reins that go around the elephant that can do some work, right? Can steer the elephant where you want to go. But at the end of the day, if the elephant wants to go somewhere, <laughs> the elephant's gonna go. The writer only has so much uh, say in the equation. Um, right. uh, psychologists will talk about this in terms of the way that our sort of processing systems work. We have the ki- the, the rider is equivalent to what we would think of as our sort of rational, uh, cognitive, uh, conscious processes, right? The mm-hmm. things that are deliberate, um, the things that are sort of slow and we can be reflective on. Um, I hear you say something, I think about it, I respond. <laughs> the best self, you know, it's not the Twitter version of myself. Um, but, but the elephant, um, uh, which is system one, this sort of base level, that's the, the the limbic system, right? The kind of the lizard brain. This is the the fight or flight part of our uh, self that really is embodied. It's pre-conscious or non-conscious. And it's it's uh, very quick and responsive, and very very helpful to keep us alive, right? Like th- yeah. this part of who we are, um, this part of our emotional self, um, our embodied self, our sensual encounter of the world. <laughs> Help! Well, it's like my puppy right now uh, crying out. He he was neutered, <laughs> and he doesn't he doesn't like that. He's hurting, and so all of his embodied sort of instinctual responses drive him in a way that. Um, He doesn't have the same kind of system to thought and cognition that a a human does. And so he's going to operate purely on sort of instinct. And so a big part of um, what practically we can think about is one, acknowledging that in many ways, we like to think of ourselves as rational agents as like, oh, I, you know, I deliberately think about doing this action. And all I have to do is think harder or better, and I'm going to be able to do it. The truth is no, <laughs> we're not very rational. Most of what we do is driven by these bottom-up instinctual processes. Yeah. And that can feel um, uh, sort of defeating, but it doesn't have to be if we reframe it and go, oh, the answer isn't to think better or to think harder, it's to to think more in embodied ways. And what I mean by that is to say, um, how can I leverage my body? How can I leverage certain routines and practices in a way that over time give me capacities to respond differently at an instinctual level? Um, And Christians in particular have, this is what I think is fantastic about, uh, well, any religious tradition, but Christians in particular um, have a whole set of resources called rituals. We have worship rituals where we gather together, we go through the motions, right? You'll even hear Um, And what those are designed to do is to habituate our bodies in ways that um, (laughs) disciple us, disciple our senses, disciple our sensibilities, disciple our desires and passions in a direction that is um, oriented toward God and others, as opposed to purely inward in a way that can often be self-destructive. I'll give you one sort of specific example that's actually not in this book. It's in another book um, that might pertain to your audience. Um, I wrote this book called breaking the marriage idol and pause. Cause my dog's grabbing my bracelet and trying to yep. stop it, buddy, stop it. Stop it. Um, He's really, he's really going at me now. Um, So one uh, specific example of this, uh, I, I this book is called breaking the marriage idol. um, And it, it's actually about how we think as evangelicals about sexuality and singleness and basically how we've as a church, um, uh, put marriage uh, in a place that answers all these questions about how to steward sexuality in ways that are unhelpful (laughs) as if all you have to do is get married and all of your problems with sexuality go away. Right? (laughs) So if you are addicted to pornography before you get married, well, now you're married, so it's not an issue. Well, no, uh, it's, it's still, you're still the same human with the problems, except now you have a spouse that's suffering under those same sort of issues. Right. Um, And so, Part of what I tried to imagine there is to say, OK, well, um, if if we've sort of gotten it wrong in terms of how we deal with issues of sexuality, of intimate relationships in the church, what what can we do? Like, what do, what do we do about this? And um, I drop on this movie. It's a, it's a it's a short film. I think it was on HBO for a while. Um, and it's about I think it's called God is the Bigger Elvis. Um, and it's about uh, a woman who was an up and coming uh, starlet in Hollywood. Um, starred alongside Elvis in a few early films and at one point just kind of stopped and gave it all up and uh, went into a convent. She became a nun. Uh, wow. So she took, she took a vow of celibacy and, and committed her life to being married literally to Jesus, right? This is, this is how um, they imagine it. And the documentarians are in there talking to her. Now she's a bit older and you can tell they are fascinated with the story primarily because they're like, how do you go from that to giving up sex? That was the main, <laughs> the main thing they were worried about. Like,
0: could have wrap their head yeah, around they're it. They're
1: just like, what is happening here, right? And so they go in and they're talking to all of the other sisters in her in her uh, convent, and and they specifically are uh, talking about when they get together and they sing together, when they worship together, um, and you have all of these nuns, and this is the God is the bigger th- than Elvis thing, or the bigger Elvis, is they go, oh it's and they're they're incredibly sincere and i think they're right each of these sisters who again who have taken vows of celibacy and um are uh, committed themselves as essentially their spouse is jesus and they're saying when we gather with our fellow nuns and we sing together that is more sexually fulfilling than anything that could happen with a man um they're like and and it's so you know i take their word for it you know i go okay um, but, but, but the reason I think psychologically is there is actually something about the ritual capacity to say, I'm, I'm gathering with a group of people. I'm, I'm singing. This is a very embodied, repeated act. And we join our voices and in doing so our bodies, we share this space together. And this is a deeply, um, and I don't want to talk about like sexual intercourse, but it's a sensual um, uh, experience that is life-giving, sustaining, um, and over time is is a practice that you instinctually develop those capacities to say, okay, now rider and elephant, um, I have a moment of of sexual desire. Well, now I've shaped myself in these really specific ways that the elephant is going in the direction that I'd want it to go because I've trained it over time. So anyway, that's a long way to get there, but that's a really practical way to think about how does psychology help us go? Here's the value of Christian ritual as a very practical way of addressing um, a really practical concern.
0: Yeah, really helpful. And I think, uh, again, one thing I'll, I'll highlight that you're saying is this is built over time this does not happen overnight yes you don't get one session of therapy or one prayer session or whatever it is yeah um it's really just the mark of maturity that develops in a believer over yeah uh, extended periods of time so really helpful yeah and Um, i
1: think you know the uh i don't want to discount it's never happened to me i wish it had but um i don't want to discount the the miraculous versions right so you have uh stories of people who have addictions and and they have a sort of Emmaus Road uh, encounter and it's like, boom, and now I yes. don't have it anymore. I, yes. I, I long for that experience with my personal <laughs> addictions. I've not had it, but um, I think you're right. On the whole, it's a lifelong uh, commitment to discipleship, to practices, to community, as opposed to a one and done thing.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I mean, you know, I've seen people who on both sides, obviously my practices helping guys through a system and a process. I think there's huge value. Uh, there's a certain depth of maturity that you get that's different than just kind of gain set free in an instant, but they both have their place. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. Um, okay, what I want to do for the remainder of the podcast is um, I want to talk through a couple different concepts that have both a theological, spiritual kind of element and a psychological element as well. And I wonder if you can maybe... Um, like kind of switch hats you know put on the theology hat talk about it through that and then switch hats and talk about it through the psychology hat we don't have to go extensive on any of these but um but i i saw them coming up throughout the book and obviously the book is a wonderful integration of both of them but i thought it'd be fun to just kind of uh pick a couple common concepts here and uh and let's see them through both lenses sure so uh okay first one is imago dei so can Mm -hmm. you talk about that through uh each of those hats
1: Sure. Uh, Does it matter which one I start with or? No, your choice. (laughs) Okay. Um, Yeah. So Imago Dei is uh, the fancy Latin word for uh, image of God. And it's really just to say we've all been created in the image of God. um, Theologically speaking, that might now be, as Christians would say, in the image of Christ, who is the the one human who actually imaged God um, in the way that we would want. Um, And and so the questions that that raises really are, what does it mean to be human? Um, and and to get to the answer of that is, what does it me- mean to be made in this thing called the Imago Dei or God's image? Um, theologically and through historical theology, a lot of different sort of things have come up. Um, usually, uh, er, not usually, often it ends up being uh, cast in the negative, though. So it's how we don't uh, image God and how we don't right. uh, quite meet the mark, right? Which is uh, good in one sense, because we need to recognize we're not there yet. Um, there's a sense in which we actually aren't fully human, right? None of The only person that's ever been fully human is Jesus in this sense, um, which is a different way than thinking of Jesus as a better version than us Um, sometimes is what we think about like i'm not you know i just need to keep being better or superhuman but actually we're kind of subhuman and we're on our way to becoming more fully human and that's part of what uh i can i can imagine my own discipleship journey being is um not just being better and uh, trying to meet this mark that's unattainable but instead going i'm living into my full humanity um, another idea with this, just theologically, that's, um, I think, pretty interesting and interesting to me from a psychological perspective, so now I'll sort of shift the hat, okay. um, is to say a lot of the work um, done in psychology right now by Christian psychologists um, also kind of mimics that theological tendency to think of it in negative terms. And so what we do in the book is try to go well what if we said this in the positive right like what does it mean to be um to to be proudly in the imago Day, not we're failed um yeah. and one way to think of it i i think comes from uh some of the work i've done um in sort of a, a systems theory or complex dynamical systems and um a big part of and, and not just that but embodied cognition and extended cognition so there's a few overlapping fields of thought here um, but essentially, where some of the leading philosophy and research um, is going psychologically, anyway, is to say we actually aren't fully human autonomously. So you and I right now are exchange are in a in a relational exchange, even though we're over Zoom, right? That's digitally mediated. Um, that is has now created a kind of um, uh, interface that's giving rise to something else. It's this emergent dynamic or property that that emerges from this complex interaction between the two of us. Um, And in that sense, actually, um, I I am inhabiting those kind of relationships always and everywhere at at every point, such that I cannot imagine myself as a fully flourishing human being. This is just purely psychological now, Um, by myself. Um, If we Translate that theologically. What I think that means is none of us image God as individuals. <laughs> um, some colleagues of mine say it this way: I, emphasis on I, am not a Christian. We are Christian, right? So, mm. so, so it's this interesting thing of saying how profoundly interconnected and interdependent we are as humans. But then also as Christians, that we actually depend upon each other in fundamental ways um, for us to be and image God in that sense of the Imago Dei. So um, that's the sort of psycho theological uh, mix that we get with that concept.
0: Fantastic. Okay, great. Um, okay, next one would be emotional health or emotional well being in general. Ooh. Um, so let's start psychologically there. Um, sure.
1: I actually think. Uh, the The idea of well-being is how, how do I use this word that it's translated? It's under-theorized in the psychological world, um, and what I mean by that is um, this gets back to earlier. We we're talking about uh, psychology is profoundly secular in many ways, and maybe and, and maybe anti-theist. What comes with that often is a, when I say under-theorized is well-being. Uh, requires some sense of direction, right? Like, like for me to be well means there's some place that I can say I'm not well right now. So getting back even to like stasis or normal or moving beyond that means there's some way I'm heading, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And as it stands, at least the way I see it, psychology on its own doesn't offer a vision of that future direction to say, here's what actual human flourishing looks like. Now, hmm. there's a whole realm called positive psychology that's that's um, the last 20 ish or so years has emerged because most psychology has said, we're just basically getting you back to baseline, right? Like we see, we look around, you know, Freud and others, it's like it's all path- pathological, your sublimated desire, you know, let's let's get people so. So well-being was we're getting them back to neutral from uh, uh, brokenness. Um, Recent turn in psychology has been we want to move beyond that and think about flourishing or thriving. Um, And what has been immediately recognized is, ooh, we need some direction. Um, And so I think this is where then theology comes in and says, well, we have a long history of talking about human flourishing and thriving. Um, And a big part of that is, um, you know, essentially living into your vocation. Who is it that God has called you to be? How is it that God has named you in your time and your place um, that you're living faithfully in that? Now, what that doesn't mean is um, human flourishing means I'm doing stuff that makes me feel happy. (laughs) That happiness is sort of like the litmus test for flourishing. But instead, it's are you living with integrity uh, between who God has designed you to be and what you're actually doing on the ground? Do those things align? Um, and that requires a sense of a kind of transcendence narrative that allows you to point toward what we would call a telos or an end, the purpose. Right. Um, and. And this, I think, is where this kind of interaction is really interesting between theology and psychology, because they both can help each other, right? We can get some ways, some maybe tools, some descriptions of how we might go about flourishing psychologically as Christians. But then psychologists and, and the whole realm of psychology benefits from theology going, hey, you might help us name some of those end goals that are required for us to get that sense of human flourishing. Um, you don't even have to use the Christian language of it, but just recognize, hey, we've got to name an end um, for us to be able to get to that sense of
0: flourishing. Yeah, fantastic. Okay, really good. Um, okay, next term, community. Oh, um, um, so I think I'll start
1: theologically there. Um, community is, uh, as a concept, I want to say a reflection of of who God is in the world, um, mm. I am a what would be called a, a sort of a communitarian theologian, or uh, my sense of the Trinity is is communitarian. Um, and this, if you're not a theologian, it may mean nothing. But um, it it's actually somewhat recent shift historically to say <laughs> the notion of who God is within God's self is a community of, of, of reciprocal hospitable. Um, life-giving interaction between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Hmm. And from there, that's the sort of fount from which everything, the whole of reality emerges. And so God is not just a, a community within God's self, but God um, uh, extends out into the world, into creation, uh, communally. Um, and so part of, back to the Imago Dei, um, that, <laughs> back to the Imago Day, that's one element of, uh, of actually, okay, he's stopping now. Um, back to the Imago Dei, that's one of the um, elements of being created in God's image is that we are communal beings. And that doesn't right. simply mean, you know, I I like to have dinner with other people. No, no, it's I am within myself in in, in fundamental and profound relationship with God, with, uh, with other humans, and with the rest of non-human creation. Um, and all of that functions to constitute me as an individual, such that I i am not a me, I am not an I, I am not a human, absent that community. Um, I think psychologically, um, there's a lot of, of interesting research, I think, um, that I would say lands in the sort of uh, social determinants of health um, uh, framework, and so, for example, uh, you can—you uh, may know this already—but you can, let's just use America because uh, I know the stats there a little bit better. Um, you can—you de- can predict uh, um, the the chance of you dying of a heart attack, or having diabetes, or or being obese, or I mean, any number of of health things based purely upon your zip code. Now, why is that? Um, in large part in the US, it's because our uh, society has been structured according to certain sort of systems and um, uh, other forces that have segregated people and places in very specific ways, often along economic, uh, political, and racial lines. So, um, the reason, so what a good example would be, you know, I live in uh, greater LA. Um, and if (laughs) they started putting freeways through a bunch of towns here, right? Years ago. Well, when you do that and you have highly congested streets, the people around these zip codes are going to suffer from certain um, health outcomes that are different Mm -hmm. than if you live in rural Kansas, right? Well, when you add on top of that, another layer of um, access to health based upon the racially segregated uh, lines of Los Angeles and Los Angeles County, um, then even more narrowly, you get uh, kids who live in a highly dense populous area that's overwhelmed with, you know, toxic fumes and they have no access to healthcare for X, Y and Z reasons. They're in a school district that um, is underfunded and they lack education. You know, you just keep adding these sort of things. All of a sudden, um, you can predict what is going to happen to them health-wise, and even their, you know, uh, h- how long they're going to live, right? With a really high degree of, of accuracy. Well, what that means is um, the way we structure our lives, the way that we think about mental health, the way we think about physical health, is is deeply interrelated. Um, what I do over here impacts what goes on over here, um, and even if I'd like to think, well, the highway is two miles from my house, no problem. Um, that is a kind of convenience for me, but it impacts other people in very specific ways. So, um, the nature of community, I think is, um, again, a very theologically robust idea and concept, but has really practical on the ground consequences, not just for our faith and how we understand, you know, Christianity, but very low level things like where do we build roads and how do we fund schools and so forth and so on.
0: Yeah. Okay. Really good. Okay. I got two more terms here. Um, sure. The next one is, it uh, could be an interesting one, especially from a theological perspective, but diagnosis, how, what, uh, what is that? How do you, uh, tackle that through the different lenses? Uh, you, you cut out where you said, you say diagnosis. Oh yeah. Sorry. Yeah. The word oh, okay, was diagnosis. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, who, so, Oh, I'll start psychologically. Um, I need to think about this theologically for a second. Uh, so that's why <laughs> I'll riff psychologically. So sure. yeah. Um, uh, the the good and bad of psychology is that is wow. with anything that is a human endeavor, right? That idolatry, in one sense, uh, a definition of it, could be something like um, a a created good, something God created um, that gets misdirected, right? Um, right. And one of the, one of those things concerns our ability to name and describe. Go back to Adam and Eve, right? One of the first things that Adam does is he he names the animals, right? This is really interesting and it's part of of God's commission of of tending and keeping the planet. Like we have a power to name things, but in naming them, um we not only um we we produce stuff in the world. And what I mean by that is um as soon as you name or describe something, you put it within this this relational network that has a power over it, right? Um, And so you bring into being a a kind of thing that didn't exist beforehand. Um, And so if I name you, for example, this is why, you know, the DTRs are so important to define the relationship, uh, you know, because when we name it, all of a sudden it becomes something different, right? So to, to say I'm dating you or I'm engaged to you or I'm married to you, um, the relationship itself generates something different. Um, and that is the same when it comes to diagnoses. When I go, you, you, and, and even how we talk about the diagnosis. So you have major depressive disorder, or you are depressed, or you struggle with bouts of depression, right? Each of these are different mm. ways of naming um, the struggle and then the the person in terms of how we diagnose them. Now, psychologically, um, there's the 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 DSM, which is the diagnostic manual, right? It's where you name things that you would say, okay, clinically, if a person exhibits this sort of psychological profile, we can confidently say they have X diagnosis, right? right. And that is helpful because it 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 keeps people in line, right? It it, it helps us distinguish between, uh, you might. You might just be experiencing a season of life that's rough. Versus, wow, you you actually need some ongoing help because something's happening within you um, that that is consistent outside of these other sort of uh, external factors. So it's very helpful, but it can lean into all of a sudden the person is consumed by the name they've been given, um, right. and and then you treat them as as a diagnosis as opposed to as a human. Um, and that can happen in the psychological sort of in the, in the clinical room. It can also happen in the church where someone comes in our community and now, for example, they are an addict and that could be pornography addiction. It could be uh, alcohol addiction, other substance, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, they then are an addict and are almost cursed by that. And even within the addiction, um, uh, world, there's a, there's a, a differing of opinion uh, as to the value of that, right? Some want to say, um, uh, you know, I am, I am not my addiction, um, but these are things that I, I wrestle with, right? And and I want to be able to have freedom from it in a way that isn't um, that I'm a lifelong addict, but it's I'm actually at some point I have developed my capacities right in a way that moves me on. Now, some would say if if you're able to do that you're not actually an addict <laughs> an actual you know. So so you see where I'm going with this but but the challenge yeah. is to say how do we acknowledge um the helpfulness of these diagnoses which are descriptions um without allowing that to consume the whole of who the human is per se. Um, I think as I said all that and I said I'm going to struggle with this uh theologically where this goes is back to, um, and actually, it's at the opening of, of our book. I use this image of uh, Toy Story, right, yes. where um, uh, Buzz Lightyear lands in Andy's room. And uh, by the way, I think Toy Story is universal and will always be relevant, no matter what.
0: Um, so, <laughs> Amen. Amen. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And they they keep they keep making the movies, so it it you know it keeps working. So I'm assuming people know Buzz Lightyear. Um, but, but Andy, the owner writes Andy's name on the bottom of, um, of Buzz Lightyear's foot and all of the toys right in the, in the room. And so, uh, part, and the pun there is that the owner, Andy writes on their soul, the name, Andy's name. And so Buzz Lightyear is Andy's toy. And even back to what does human flourishing look like? It could be that we um, live into being God's beloved, right? That God has written written a name on our souls. Um, we are children of God, and that is actually our diagnosis, right? Like we are named by God in this way. So the danger of diagnoses is that, in some ways, these descriptions for the various ways that we inhabit our bodies, we inhabit our worlds many of them broken, right? Like we we inhabit broken systems, broken bodies, flawed, frailed you know, habits that we've inherited from our families, et cetera, et cetera. And the challenge is sometimes that um, supersedes the diagnosis that God has given us. Um, and that's always, I think, the, the the balancing act that we need to draw as individuals to be compassionate on ourselves, to know at the end of the day, God has named me, My addiction hasn't named me. My pathologies haven't named me. My psychologist hasn't named me. uh, My my parents or whoever. God has named me and I'm going to I'm going to lay hold of that um, even while recognizing the benefits of going, Okay, I do need some diagnoses uh, to help me kind of figure out (laughs) how to navigate (laughs) life. But when those become ultimate, um, something's amiss and and maybe a reordering is in, in order.
0: Yeah, that was fantastic, well done. Um, And I just made that up, so hopefully that's helpful. (laughs) No, it was really good, it was really good, yeah, I'm impressed. Um, Okay, last one, Um, you talked about this in in chapter six, kind of about the collaboration of the Holy Spirit and psychotherapy that can help somebody identify unconscious patterns of behavior, bring them to a conscious level, and then of course act accordingly and make some changes. Um, so I guess the operative term, our, our first pillar in our program is cultivating self-awareness. Um, yeah. Can you comment on that from both sides?
1: Yeah. Um, so, so Augustine, I'll go theology Theology first. Um, Augustine says something like, um, God is closer to me than I am to myself. Um, and so what I think Augustine was one of the, maybe the first Humans in the Western canon that wrote a, basically an autobiography, and and was sort of hinting at this sort of psychoanalysis of the self, hmm. um, which I find fascinating. Right, um, that that he's writing this um, as a Christian, and but a big part of and and Augustine was also um, prior to becoming Christian um, was an incredibly like sexually promiscuous guy. And always struggled with his sexuality once he became a Christian, right? Like this is huh. a part of his ongoing struggle of what do I do with these desires, God? Um how do I how do I make sense of them, right? Um, and part of it, and you could you could go to Paul, right? The apostle Paul saying, like, I've got this thorn in my flesh, I feel like I can't, I can't get rid of, right? Um, that there's something there. My grace is sufficient for you. It keeps getting back to this notion that. In many ways, we are a stranger to ourselves Um, and we can we can just ignore that and move on. Or we can do the deep sort of digging, the self-reflective work to say, I need to familiarize myself with myself. Um, I may think that I know me, but I don't. And so step one, I think, is perfect. What you're saying is. Um, wait, did you say self critique or self awareness,
0: self awareness, self awareness? Yes. Yeah.
1: To go, okay, I need to become more self aware. This is a, this is actually part of, of, of my Christian commitment, right? That I want to become self aware. And that involves opening myself up and listening to the promptings of the spirit hmm. that are actually closer to who I am than me. Right. Hmm. Um, now that gets a little fuzzy. Well, what does that mean? Here's where psychology can actually be helpful to go. Okay. Well, what are some of the tools of self-awareness? What are some of the ways that we can do this? And and I'll just speak personally here, this is not every, everyone every, everywhere, but um, some really basic uh, practices that are often used to deal, for example, with trauma, um, all have to do with becoming more embodied. So breathing practices, grounding practices, um, guided meditation, these are things, and, and mindfulness, and some may get a little bit like, whoa, wait a minute, you know, new age spirituality. Actually, um, I want to say most of these uh, practices that are mindfulness and, and guided meditation and grounding and breathing are actually rooted in a long history of Christian practices first,
0: mm. that then
1: became sort of secularized, not all of them, but, but many of them, which is to say, in the modern world, we are over, our attention is totally taxed, right? Like, It's an attention economy. Everything everywhere is trying to grab my attention. My attention is sold, right? Like it's bought and sold by Facebook, by Apple, by Twitter. And so finding practices to say, I'm actually going to stop having my attention consumed, but instead I'm gonna focus it in ways that um, allow me to commune back to community with the spirit through breathing and through recognizing that I'm a body. (laughs) I inhabit this body. And that body is animated by the spirit of God in the world. Um, That to me is a form, is step one in saying, here's how I become self-aware. Here's how I become more aware of um, my natural ways that I respond emotionally to certain um, uh, situations, to other people, um, the way I've habituated myself, and how I can start um, building in practices to uh, interrupt those habits, right? So that I can go, okay, my first instinct is to, well, this morning, my, my girls were emotionally all over the place. I have three daughters and my first, my first instinct as a, as a chronic overreactor is to overreact right to their overreaction. And if I can stop and go, okay, I need to breathe. (laughs) I need to like get my emotions in check before I respond and make that part of my practice. I become a better father, right? Like i be, I'm responding to their, their um, responses uh, more effectively, but that all requires before that moment, which was this morning at 7 a.m. getting breakfast ready, I have to become self-aware. I have to become aware of my body, um, my emotions, my heart, my mind in ways that allow me to go, what's going on here so that I can actually build in some tools so that when I get to that moment where everything's stressed, um, I've got something to draw upon. So I, uh, that's where kind of the spirit, theology, and psychology all mix and merge in self-awareness.
0: Yeah, fantastic, fantastic. Cutter, this has been uh, very rich. Thank you so much just for sharing your sure. wisdom and expertise. And uh, like I said, these are some of the resources I've been waiting for for a long time. It's really exciting uh, just to meet you and, and to, to know about what you're doing. The book is called Theology for Psychology and Counseling, um, and I think it's pretty much available anywhere people want to get a book. Um, where else could people connect with you if they wanted to know a little bit more? Sure. Um, the
1: usual places, uh, I'm on, on the Twitters and the Facebooks, uh, the book of faces, uh, it's all, thankfully my name is unique. So it's just, all my handles are at Cutter Calloway spelled Cutter with a K Calloway with a C. Um, you can go to CutterCalloway.com. Um, if you, if you Google my name and Fuller Seminary, most of my other stuff there comes up as well. So pretty easy to find.
0: Amazing. Cutter, thanks for your time today. Appreciate it. Yep. Thanks so much for having me. Well, there you have it. Uh, you can tell Doctor Calloway is a very smart man, and I hope that you were able to just extract some of the, uh, some of the nuggets there, some of the pearls about how to handle emotions and community and. You know, just all the different aspects of integrating psychology and theology in a really meaningful way. I want to encourage you to check out his book if this is material that you're interested in. I highly recommend you go check him out. Otherwise, you can just go to his website and uh, or follow him on social media. We put all of his links in the show notes. And uh, maybe you're you're listening to this and you're starting to feel that that realization of you know I've had porn in my life for a while. I don't think I want to have it any longer. Um, We have created a blueprint for recovery called the Last. Relapse. And uh, that is a best selling book of mine that has done really well. Um, You know, it's been featured on national television multiple times over, tons of podcasting, rave reviews all around the world. Um, But I am offering it to you free of charge. You can get a free digital download at thelastrelapsebook.com. I'd love for you to get your hands on that. I think it's really gonna help you. It also comes with a free workbook. Um if you once you start reading the book, it'll teach you or it'll show you where you have to go to get that. But um you know we're we're trying to resource guys as much as possible because it's a struggle out there and porn addiction is not an easy thing to overcome. And I'm trying to make all of the strategies, tools, resources that are making a huge impact in our communities as accessible to you guys as possible. And if you want a chance to join one of our communities, maybe you're in a desperate situation. Maybe you've tried internet filters, accountability partners, willpower, spiritual disciplines, and they've let you down. And you know that you need some help. Um, I want you to go to my website and book a call with me. Okay, I set aside time every week um, and there's people on our team. We all set aside time to speak with you guys so that we can help you and we can figure out what a solution might be going forward. So if that's something you're interested in, uh, there's calls available. I have bu- booked out some time. I always have time available uh, for the guys from the podcast. So uh, much love. Thank you guys so much for listening. Have an amazing day and we'll talk soon. Bye-bye.